No? Testing, are we all on? Can you hear me at home? Just raise your hand. I'm kidding. Thank you for joining us if you're online, and uh, thank you for joining us here uh, in the room as well. But uh, do uh, turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians, New Testament, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. As we continue our study of biblical prophecy, we want to uh, recognize today that spiritual battle is real. Uh, I don't know what your background is or what that term spiritual battle means to you, but uh, this morning we're going to see that Satan is real and he will be particularly active as... Uh, the timeline on earth winds down. If you're acquainted with Ephesians chapter 6, what Paul wrote there, you know that he described that, that our real spiritual struggles really boil down to us versus unseen forces. This is what Paul wrote in Ephesians. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You can't see any of that, but it's real. There is a real spiritual struggle. Let me just kind of give you a review of basically what the spirit realm is according to Scripture. God did not create good angels and bad spirits called demons, God created all things good, and so he created all angels. So how is there a being like Satan and demons? Satan was the highest ranking of the angels, and he rebelled against God. Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 uh, describe some of that. In that rebellion a large portion of the demon, the angel world, followed Satan. And Satan's thing was, Isaiah 14 says, he wanted to be like God. That's a problem anytime we really want to control things, is we're trying to be God. And so in this rebellion, angels made a decision, a one-and-done decision, whether they would follow Satan or God. And so the demons, now that we call them, or fallen angels, are 100% evil. They aren't kind of good, kind of bad. They are 100% evil all the time. And their nature is evil and opposing God. That's their, that's their mission from now on. So Satan hates God. And thus Satan hates believers in Christ who follow him. In fact, Satan hates everybody. He hates unbelievers as well. And though he will, in a sense, come across as an angel of light to them, the scripture says, what he is trying to do is block them from believing, putting their faith in Jesus Christ in the cross. And that will become the issue even more intensely during the tribulation. So the question is, why are we talking about spiritual battle in this study of the future? 
Satan's work will intensify because he knows, <clears throat> he knows his time is short. If we know it, he knows it. His time is short, and we will see that in the seven-year tribulation, he is going to particularly work through an individual we usually know as the Antichrist, a human being that will be a, a direct instrument of Satan on earth, and the goal, the objective, which is the same objective of Satan today, is to stop people from believing in Christ. But the good news is, God just keeps winning with the power of the gospel. Now, and even in that difficult time, the seven-year tribulation. So, here in Second Thessalonians, we'll start with verse 1 and begin to understand something about the Antichrist who is called here the man of sin or man of lawlessness. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, that's the rapture that he's describing there, we ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord <clears throat> has already come. So he references two things that we've studied recently in the first letter Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. First Thessalonians 4 referred to the rapture, our gathering to him. And then more specifically, First Thessalonians 5, our study last week, described this time called the day of the Lord. And so I need need us just to go back a little bit to review what is the day of the Lord, what all does it include. And in case you haven't been with us in the whole study, or maybe this is the first time that you're tuning in with us even, uh, just kind of a summary of where we've come in our study of the, of, the, of the prophecies of Scripture and what we do know. We don't know dates and times, but we do know some sequences. So if we go back to the time of the cross, what is now going on, the dotted line, is the church age. And so we really today are part of the same thing that the Thessalonians were part of because we live in the age of the church. The next event that we know that God has described could happen at any time, it, the rapture is imminent. It's when it, we will be caught up in the air to meet the Lord and we will be forever with the Lord. He comes to deliver us from the wrath to come, 1 Thessalonians uh, 1, I think it's 10 and 5, 9, say God's delivering us from the coming wrath. Well, the coming wrath is this seven-year tribulation time. Uh, in our study of Daniel, we saw this overview of God's plan for Israel, where he breaks off his focus on Israel so that the church age is like a big parenthesis, but God has not forgotten Israel. Interestingly, and amazingly, there is a nation of Israel today when there hadn't been from A.D. 70, at the time the temple was destroyed by the Romans, all the way till 1948 when Israel became a nation again. But there is an Israel now, and so it's not at all surprising to us from our historical perspective that God will pick up his plan with Israel, and it's that 70th seven or the tribulation age that takes so much of the focus of biblical prophecy. At the end of that season of time, there will be what we could call a second coming, and we'll begin to see today how it's distinguished from the rapture. The rapture is for Christians to be taken to heaven. The, coming of, the second coming of Christ is a coming of judgment at the end of the tribulation. 
And then Revelation 20 describes a thousand-year millennial age. This is all on earth because as believers, we will be in heaven. But we'll be seeing some of the things that will happen on earth during the Great Tribulation. Where does the term the day of the Lord fit? It actually is a season of time because we find this phrase in biblical prophecies of the Old Testament as well as the New And we see that there are judgments of God, particularly during the tribulation age, but all the way through, including judgments at the end of the millennium. So, with that background, Paul has just taught in Thessalonica. In fact, he's probably only a couple of months after writing 1 Thessalonians, and Paul is in Corinth. When he gets word, as what we just read, that some people are saying, the day of the Lord has come, the day of the Lord has come, that Paul was talking about. And so Paul has to write back correctively and say, actually, no, the day of the Lord has not yet come. Meaning Christ has not returned in the rapture yet. The events of the seven-year tribulation have not yet been triggered. So relax, it's not that. We might ask the question, why would they ever think or believe those who maybe even, we don't know, intentionally distorted Paul's words, but why could they even naturally think that perhaps the day of the Lord had begun? I wonder if it isn't because of the intense persecution they were under. Go go back to chapter 1 of this book, verse 4. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. So, yes, there is persecution, but persecution of the church before the rapture is not the same as God's wrath in the day of the Lord, for example, times like the seven-year tribulation after the rapture. There is persecution today. I read this morning uh, a news item of a lady named Dinah in uh, an Asian country who uh, has, from the Voice of the Martyrs uh, ministry, who follows a lot of the persecuted church, but she is being refused help with coronavirus in, uh, in, in her area. Officials came to see her. She cannot get insurance because she believes in Christ. And they asked her to renounce Christ, and they would help her. And when she said no, they took a, they took a bucket of scalding water and threw it at her feet and she is scarred from that we don't understand persecution at this point do we but it's happening and it doesn't mean the day of the lord has come it just means that there is a cost to following christ and so we begin to see there is this spiritual conflict that is going on and the greatest conflict is god versus satan but god is the creator. Satan is the created and his power, God's power will always prevail. But what Satan hates is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We find out more about him as we continue reading in verse 3. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day, the day of the Lord, will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. And then he adds, the man doomed to destruction. That's good news. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself 
to be God. This is a scene in the seven-year tribulation when the temple will be reactivated. And he is called here the man of sin because he is thoroughly sinful, just like Satan and the demons. In fact, he, the fact that he's doing the work of Satan is very clear in verse, uh, verse 9, a little bit later. The man of sin, or the Antichrist, is called a variety of things in Scripture. Here's a, a list of some of the main ones. The man of sin, here in Second Thessalonians, he's called the Antichrist who is to come. That's kind of the name that has stuck the best commonly. We refer to him that way, First John 2.18. He's called the beast, or the beast out of the sea, in uh, Revelation, numerous places. In Daniel, he's called in various visions the little horn, or the prince that will come or the willful king. But it's the same human instrument of Satan during the tribulation time. Sometimes people have speculated whether the Antichrist could be alive today, and in fact, he could be. If the, if the uh, timing of God were that the rapture is occurring in the near future to us, decades or our lifetime, indeed, the Antichrist could be living today. But efforts to try to identify him are misguided because the point is that he will not be revealed until the day of the Lord starts. So don't, don't try to figure it out and, and don't believe the people who are saying they've got it figured out. Paul's point is that the day of the Lord, the rebellion, the, uh, the revelation of the man of sin is all kind of, kind of this, that's going to be at the beginning of the next phase. But what's next? We know it's the rapture that is next. What else do we know about this passage that is encouraging? Remember, we read, he is the one doomed to destruction. So we know the end of the line for him. And God is sovereign. Same word Pastor Seth was using in our call to worship. God is sovereign over all evil. If he's sovereign over evil then, he's sovereign over evil now because God is sovereign. But this man will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God and is worshipped. So in, when he is revealed, he is going to demand that everyone worship him, actually. That's what it says. He sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. So he becomes the, the, the religious focus, really the one world religion of that day. So is there other other passages that help us understand what this individual will do during that season. We studied in Daniel chapter 9 about the prince who is to come. And this passage describes it this way. He will make a covenant with the many, and the many are Jews. Daniel 9 is about the Jewish people, people of Israel. He will make a covenant with the many for one seven, that's that seven-year period of time, In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. I love the way passages about the Antichrist often include that phrase, and he's going down. (laughs) He is doomed to destruction. But he will set himself up in the temple. So there will be a revived uh, temple during that time. Uh, Jewish people even today would long to have the temple. So unbelieving Jews today are really in their mindset uh, prepared for worshiping in a temple. And so we can only imagine that perhaps as all the believers are gone, 
those who have believed in Christ, Jew or Gentile, and the ensuing chaos upon the earth, that this individual who is then revealed is able to get the following of the world, probably because he seems to have the answers. Everybody will be desperate for answers. And he will make some kind of a covenant or peace treaty, evidently with the Jewish people, promising them they can worship in the temple. I mean, if somebody can really seemingly solve the Jewish-Arab conflict, wow, let's follow him. But of course, he cares nothing for God's people, the Jews. He is a liar and he is opposed to them. Jesus described this same um, issue that about how in the middle, okay, it's what this passage says, that in the middle of the seven, so halfway through the tribulation time, which will be a distinct turning point of that, of that season, and we'll see that as well in other passages and other weeks in Revelation, Jesus described the same moment this way. So when you see standing in the holy place, the temple, the abomination that causes desolation spoken of who? Through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then let him that those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So he's speaking prophetically while Jesus was on earth of this future time in the tribulation when this individual will commit some kind of abomination of desolation. Sounds really bad, and it is. Whatever an abomination of desolation is, it's really bad. What is it that would cause Jesus to say, that's the time to get out of Jerusalem and flee to the mountains? Because people reading this during the tribulation, that is your signal to go for safety. What would that event so frightening be? Again, it aligns with the passage in the book of Revelation 13, where it says that there will be an image set up in honor of the beast, the Antichrist, who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. There will be a fake resurrection We'll come across a, a similar passage in this chapter later today. All who refused to worship the image were to be killed. So he becomes the focus of worship. It's exactly what Paul was revealing by the Spirit here in chapter 2, verse 5. He sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. There is nothing so abominable as someone claiming to be God. That's the very thing Satan wanted was to be like God. We must submit ourselves to the sovereign control of God. We need to give up trying to think we're going to control what only God controls. So it'll be an awful time, but Paul's point is, it's not yet. It's not yet because something else has to happen first. Verse 5. Don't you remember that when I was with you, and it's only a couple months before, in A.D. 51 probably, when I was with you, I used to tell you these things, and now you know what is holding him back, so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he's taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Again, for our encouragement. But the Antichrist will be revealed after the restrainer, you may have that term, the restrainer or the one who restrains is taken out of the way. So that raises a big question in our mind as Bible readers. Who is, what is 
the thing holding back the revelation of the man of sin? What's different now than then? And he makes the point that it's not like there is no sin or lawlessness, right? Verse 7, the secret power of lawlessness is already at work. There's plenty of evil. Satan's doing plenty of evil. But it's not as bad as it could be when the restrainer will be removed. So, I, you know, you kind of wish you could have been a fly on the wall when Paul was at Thessalonica and teaching these things, verses 5 and 6, because we don't have every detail, but I think we have enough information to make a good, uh, educated, theological guess of who the restrainer is. And in verse 7, it is a personal pronoun, he, who. So, it, I believe it refers to the Holy Spirit. Who else is strong enough except God to restrain this satanic individual. God can do so. And the Holy Spirit is right now, what's the Holy Spirit's role in the world today? Where does he dwell? In believers? Or you could say in the church corporately? And so God is at work restraining evil proclaiming the gospel, accomplishing good things today because the Holy Spirit is present and working through you, working through us in our influence as salt and light in the world. But when the rapture takes place, what changes? The church is gone. And so while the Holy Spirit is still omnipresent, he doesn't change his nature, he is not any longer dwelling in us with the influence of believers and the church here on earth. The Holy Spirit's presence and our presence is frankly the reason there is so much good on earth. Okay, we can certainly see the evil. Do you realize how much good there is on earth? Do you realize how amazing it is that, that things function the way that, that they do and, and that your, your neighbors and you have a good relationship most of the time? Where is all this goodwill coming from? Why is there good on the earth might be a, a more important question than why is there evil? I think there's two sources of good, but one is that mankind bears the image of God. He made us in his image. And so I think that explains why even among those who are unbelievers, there is often very good things that they do. Have you noticed that? Did that ever puzzle you as you think as a Christian? Well, how, they don't have the Spirit. How, how can they be so good? Well, the image of God is in, it, it indwells all of us in, in, a, in a more general sense. One time I've mentioned before, Priscilla worked at a, a secular company when we were going through seminary in Dallas, and she was a secretary for a, a number of salespeople. And the man that was like the easiest and best, kindest man to work with, a guy named Ken, was an atheist. So why was Ken such a nice guy? Not because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, but I believe the abiding presence of the image of God, and, and, and people can, can respond to that in a general sense. But the more important reason there is good on earth is because of the Holy Spirit indwelling all. So the Im indwelling believers. The image of God is in all, but the Holy Spirit of God is in you who believe. And so the Holy Spirit then becomes the one who is at work in you and then in your home 
as you influence children, and then all of you influence the schools you go to, places you work, the organizations you belong to, the efforts you seek to do corporately, and, and Christians have been behind the starting of so many hospitals. How many hospitals start with just even the word saint? I mean, just, there is a general spiritual background that the, the Baptists, the Presbyterians, or the Catholics, or whoever it might be, who have stimulated the starting of a hospital or the Milwaukee Rescue Mission, that God's people are at work. And someday, though, that'll be taken out of the way when the rapture happens. And when the Holy Spirit is gone, suddenly, yes, everything breaks loose. And the man of lawlessness will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Now, if you think about the destruction of the Antichrist at the splendor of his coming, it should cause us to ask some questions about sequence. Well, when does that happen? What have we learned about the coming of Christ for the church? It's imminent. Paul thought this could happen at any time. And chapter 2 here, verse 1, he says, our gathering to him. The rapture is about the coming of Christ for the church. But what is this coming referring to? This is his coming to judge non-Christians. And as we continue our study of the, of, of the tribulation time, we will see the, the judgment when Christ returns, not in the air for believers, but to the Mount of Olives and destroys the Antichrist and judges unbelievers on earth. The, pouring, the, ultimate, the, the culmination of him as he pours out his wrath. And so that is the, the end game, if you will. So we kind of see this sequence. He comes to gather the church. Then there is this, this seven-year time of him pouring out the wrath as the day of the Lord begins, and he judges people on earth. The Antichrist emerges. And, and it all kind of, it, 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 it just shows you the spiritual battle is between God and Satan. And Satan, when he gets any opportunity, will do everything he can to stop the truth. Verse 9. The coming of the lawlessness, the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs, and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. Satan works through deceit. Remember we saw in, in Revelation 13 that there was this uh, the, the Antichrist will, will be pierced with a sword and yet live. Revelation 13 earlier said this, the dragon, identified there in that context as Satan, gave the beast, the Antichrist, his power and his throne and great authority. And one of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal, seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed and the whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. So it seems there is a false, counterfeit, fake resurrection. The Antichrist is seemingly killed and he comes to life. And people follow him because Satan works through counterfeit miracles. Why would anyone believe Satan and the Antichrist and be fooled by this? Keep reading in verse 10. They perish, now referring to unbelievers, they perish 
because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. That's the issue. They refuse to love the truth and so be be saved. So could they have been saved? Yes. Will there be people saved? We will see yes. But unbelievers will refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And for this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. And so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. So this is the power of Satan working through the Antichrist, but working in the hard hearts of people living in that time who will have exposure to the truth. They will still hear the gospel even then, but they will refuse the truth and instead delight in unrighteousness. The issue is truth. They will refuse the truth of the gospel. If you were with us last week and I encourage you, if you uh, have have an opportunity to look at uh, how we talked about the gospel, the gospel message is that Christ died for our sins and rose again. And the only way you can be saved, which is just referenced here, is by putting your faith in Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins and rose again. And so this passage says that they perish because they refuse that, or they're condemned because they didn't believe the truth. The truth is what we read in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that's Christ dying for our sins on the cross, that whoever believes in him shall not, what's the word? Perish, but have eternal life. That's the, that's the truth people will refuse to believe even after the rapture. Or verse 18, Whoever believes in him Christ, his death and resurrection. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. The issue, friends, is believing in Christ. What Satan is opposed to today, what Satan is opposed to in the tribulation age will be the truth that Christ died for our sins and rose again. Apart from believing in, trusting in Christ, we perish, verse 10. We are condemned, uh, verse 12. So that is the spiritual battle that we face. Satan hates everyone. He hates God, he's the enemy of God, because of that he hates Christians, and we are his enemy. And he hates unbelievers who are his victims. So Satan has enemies, those who believe the truth, and he has victims who have not believed the truth. We need to understand clearly the enemy is Satan and not Satan's victims. We are called to make disciples of all nations. So they are unbelievers. And our real mission is to understand the real battle so that our focus will be on communicating the gospel, the good news of Jesus, to the victims of Satan. The enemy is Satan. And indeed, he has human allies who work for him. Indeed. But the masses of unbelievers that sometimes annoy us or irritate us or we don't understand, why do they think that? They are the victims of the enemy, and we are called to reach them. 
as the old hymn said, rescue the perishing, care for the dying. Turn to Revelation 7 for some good news about the age of the tribulation. And that is that God is at work then as now in saving people through the gospel in spite of the worst of times and the, and the height, if you will, of Satan's influence. Revelation 7. In an event that, okay, Revelation chapter is really all the way from 4 through 18, right, and, and really 19, describe the seven-year tribulation. That's what the book of Revelation basically, mostly, is about. And so early in this uh, somewhat sequential record of revelation about the, the, the time of the tribulation, we see this happening. I think this is right at the front end of the tribulation age. Start in verse 2. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east. This is John's vision. Having the seal of the living God. This angel has the seal. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea because God is bringing judgment on earth. But do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. I won't read all the rest of that, but it's the 12 tribes of Israel, 12,000 each, 144,000 total, because remember, God is resuming his plan for the nation of Israel, which, of course, now again exists. In verses, so what, what were these? What were these uh, 144,000 Jews called to do? Well, in general, it's to serve God. And what is God about to do? What is God doing through these servants? He is communicating the gospel. I believe these are essentially evangelists because at the end of the list of these 144,000, we now meet people from all nations who are saved, redeemed. Verse 9, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne. This is in heaven. So just keep in mind that from between verses 8 and 9, we've gone from the ministry of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, I'll call them, on earth, to now a scene in heaven before the throne of God where there's this multitudes of, of, of people from all kinds of nations. They were wearing white robes, they're believers, and, and, were, uh, and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God. That's what it's about. They are saved. Who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, remember the Lamb who has slain Jesus, and all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And now we see them identified. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are martyrs. These are people who come to faith in Christ through the ministry of the 144,000 Jewish servants of God 
but they pay for it with their life. And, but where do they go the moment they are martyred? They, therefore, verse 15, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in the temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tent over them. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them nor the scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. A picture of their glorious presence with Christ in heaven. And if you were to ask them then, was it worth it? They would say yes. They're singing of God's grace. And it teaches us that if the worst thing we could imagine on earth, perhaps martyrdom, were to take place, we would experience the best thing forever as we enter the doors of eternity. If the rapture were to occur today or in our lifetime, then uh, some of these 144,000 Jews could be alive today, but living in a state of unbelief, as, as many Jewish uh, friends are. And the multitude that no one could number, verse 9, 10, they could be living now too, if God's plan were that the rapture were to occur in the, to us near future or in our lifetime. What does that tell us about our efforts to share the gospel? Keep at it. What does that tell us if sometimes when you share the gospel, there are hard hearts that we know they are just dead set against it? You never know what God can do. Hard hearts are God's specialty, and it could be that even the event of the rapture would be that which changes their perspective, jogs their mind, maybe going back to the gospel that we shared with them, and they seem to reject. It could be you're watching this broadcast, and this is all kind of new and strange, and what is this Bible prophecy, and what is this rapture, and, and maybe your heart isn't ready, I trust it is, to embrace the gospel and understand Christ died for your sins and rose again. But it could be that some listening or some watching a video later or somebody in this room who's rejecting now will receive Christ by faith after the rapture. You don't want to wait. You know, that we sometimes think, is there a second chance? There is no second chance after death. It's appointed to man once to die, Hebrews 9.27. It's appointed to man once to die and after that the judgment. But there is a chance after the rapture from the best that we can determine because people are coming to faith in Christ in that unique season. We should be encouraged that God is at work saving people now in the worst of circumstances too. So we all know that it's a troubled world. The song that we, I think we sang at first last week is, do you think the world is broken? It is. Yeah. But God's at work saving. And we need to lift up our eyes to the harvest because that's really what, what is happening. This week with all the uh, tragic and, uh, tragedy and violence in Kenosha, it was encouraging to hear the words. Uh, you may have seen the video by the mother of uh, Jacob Blake as she speaks of her faith in God 
the best we can determine in calling people to pray as she has prayed for her sons. I go, now there's a refreshing perspective. Only God can bring people to reconciliation. And uh, some of what was happening in, 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 in Kenosha, and I'm not sure all the background of it, but there was a baptism tank there, and, and, and people were embracing each other and, and, and speaking of Jesus. So I, I trust that the gospel was being, was being shared. Our only hope in any age is that God is at work saving people. That is the true spiritual battle. And we need to be focused on that. What happens in the tribulation is just like a multiplication or an exponential picture of what really is happening around the world. He is at work saving. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 14. What happens to those 144,000 servants of God? We read about them in chapter 14. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, Lamb referring to Christ, and with him 144,000 who had his name and the Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven, and the roar of rushing waters, and like a peal of thun- loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing on their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So there's a scene in heaven. They were redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure. They follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They were purchased from among men and offered as firstfruits to God and the Lamb. The 144,000 we learn are are especially dedicated to God during this season. And there's some room for interpretation where this takes place, or when I should say this takes place. Uh, Mount Zion in verse 1 is a poetic reference to Jerusalem, but it can also be a poetic reference to the new Jerusalem in heaven. And for the most part, this scene is clearly in heaven. It's the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And so they are in heaven. The part that is, I think, open to interpretation is, is this a scene after the tribulation when the 144,000 who God sealed and protected through the entire revelation are then in heaven later? Or is this a scene rather of during the tribulation that the 144,000 also, uh, after perhaps their first three and a half years of ministry, succumb to martyrdom, and so they are now enjoying heaven and worshiping there as well. But they sing a new song that was exclusive to them. God has some unique reward for them in heaven for their committed, faithful service to him, in which if indeed they were martyred at the time, that would make sense. Because God's a rewarder of faithfulness. And what's on God's heart is the gospel. And so it calls us to equally pursue a committed devotion to sharing the most important thing that's the, the core starting point for every human being, which is the gospel Christ died for your sins and rose again. And so I hope we see the nature of God to reward. I hope we see the passion of God to call people to faith. And we have to ask ourselves, what's our priority? 
can, I think we can be distracted from the gospel in our desperate effort to avoid persecution. When maybe God is trying to make us focus on the gospel by allowing persecution. No one welcomes persecution. We should be praying for the persecuted church. That lady, Dinah, I mentioned earlier. We will be praying, if persecution increases in our lifetime, we'll be praying for one another. We'll be praying for relief. These, these, are, these are legitimate efforts and prayers. But let's not be distracted from the gospel trying to avoid persecution when perhaps God's allowing persecution to refocus us on the gospel. It's so important to God that as we keep reading verses 6 and 7, we find that even during this tribulation age, God is so committed to communicating his grace, he sends out an angel to proclaim the gospel. Then I saw another angel, verse 6, I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel. Good news about Christ to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And he said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. It's like one final warning, everybody. Is this going to be somehow a, a, a verbal pronunciation of the gospel that everybody can hear in their language? Because God wants to speak to every heart. And he says, worship, the angel says, worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. It's actually a pretty important first step to understanding the gospel is to understand that God is our creator. That's why the, that's why the, the doctrine of God's creation of the world is so vital. It's vital to the gospel. If we cannot believe that God would create the world, it didn't evolve out of nothing. If we cannot believe that God created the world, how can we believe that God has provided the solution to our sin through Jesus Christ who was on earth 2,000 years ago and we will be in heaven instead of hell if we believe in him? The greater miracle, of course, is salvation, but if we cannot believe the miracle of God's creative work, why would we believe the miracle of his new creation when we come to faith in Christ. The bottom line of any biblical prophecy is God wins. The good news is that he wins every time someone puts their faith in the gospel. Jesus died for our sins and rose again. So if you have placed your faith in Christ, if you have placed your faith in Christ as you're watching right now, Satan's already lost that battle with you. And he can never get you back. Your salvation is secure. Your status has changed. You come from death, spiritually, to life. He's lost that battle, but now you're a target. And so he'll do everything he can to make sin attractive, to hook us with his bait. He can try to make sin attractive. He can try to destroy our testimony. He can try to distract our attention but that's why we need to be stay laser-focused where God is focused, calling men and women and children to faith in Christ. I leave you with this good news about the power of the gospel. Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, hell, shall not prevail against it. And remember, we've talked about this before, 
The church in this verse is on offense. And Satan's defense can't stop it. This is not about him attacking us. This is about us attacking the strongholds of Satan. And the gates of hell cannot stop the power of the gospel. And the power of the gospel is communicated by you and me who are empowered by the Spirit of God as the church of God. And so we have every reason to rejoice and to seize the opportunities of our day because God is saving people today as well in spite of Satan's forces. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, acknowledge that sometimes the gospel is far away from our minds because we've got to get to work, we've got kids to raise, we have this stress and this pressure and this worry, this fear, and so it can be a very distracting, confusing life, and so we need, oh God, this call to remember where it all starts, and that the real battle is between you and your people powerfully defeating the power of Satan. And the real division among people is not the things we think it is, us and them and this and that, but the real division is between those who have embraced the gospel and believed in Christ and those who have not, but have refused the gospel. And, oh God, may we be faithful in communicating that good news to them of your Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. In closing, guys, just remember, God has uniquely positioned you to be the proclaimer of the gospel to the world around you. Uh, You don't know if there's a person who needs to hear the good news or if a believer in Jesus needs to be encouraged uh, today. Just another note of encouragement for you. Years ago, I read a book called by Erwin Lutzer called The Serpent of Paradise. And the uh, subtitle is The Incredible Story of How what, Satan's Rebellion Serves God's Purposes. So I want to encourage you, if you um, are a reader, to pick that up. That was something God used in my life. Um, a few details for you. This is the last week for the two drives that are going to be out the door for the Milwaukee Rescue Mission and the clothes for the Philippines, if you have an interest in that. And then for the men and women, two opportunities. The ladies' Bible study is going to be starting up on September 10th uh, on the book of first, first, books 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And then next week, between the services, if you're a man that would like to know more information about the men's discipleship that will be taking place starting at the end of September, Uh, There's an informational meeting between the services in the Discipleship Center, so you're invited to come. Either If you're coming from the first service, stay over, or second service, come a little bit early. And uh, you can find out an opportunity to grow in Christ together. With that, are you encouraged? God's in control. He's sovereign. Okay, well then let's sing to our sovereign God. Would you guys stand with us? And we'll continue singing.